0: Good morning. Uh, My name is Megan, and today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John 14, starting in verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. And parents and guardians of children in preschool through fourth grade, you'll be invited to escort your kids to join their kids' common classes upstairs at that time. As you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am, and you know the way to where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you'd really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. Uh, My name is Marcus. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. Thanks for being here and sharing community with us. Uh, As is our custom, let's spend a few moments in silence, preparing our hearts to hear from the Lord this morning. I'll pray after a few moments before getting started. Almighty God, you have created all things. You've created all people. We thank you so much for that gift. Looking around, looking outside, feeling connection with one another. Thank you, Jesus. May we engage this gift with hope, joy, love, Open our hearts and our eyes this morning to see creation as you see it. Amen. Some things just have to be known before we believe it. Uh, In 2017, a subscription service came out called MoviePass. The service claimed that for $10 a month, you could see one movie a day in movie theaters. $10 a month, one movie a day in theaters. This is a huge deal. As an avid moviegoer myself, this seemed way too good to be true. Why hasn't anybody done this model before? How are they making money? Am I stealing from somebody somewhere along the way? But I bought in, I did it, and I fell in love. I, I milked it. I milked my MoviePass. Over the course of four months, I saw 26 movies in movie theaters. It was bliss. But it wasn't long before MoviePass came crashing down. By fall of 2018 a little over a year later, rumors started to swirl that MoviePass was having financial issues. And by 2019, they filed for bankruptcy. It was MoviePass's grand fall. I did not contribute to that in any way. turns out that for me, MoviePass was too good to be true. And at some point, I think we've all learned a similar lesson about something. We find something that gives us this cautious optimism, but then there's that voice that says, hey, be skeptical about this. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And many times we are proven right. It was too good to be true. In response, we as a people, we've grown efficient, logical, practical, wise. We need to develop these skills to become people to survive in this world that is full of fake news and filters and movie pass. Some things just have to be known before we believe it. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series we're calling Hour of Glory. We've pivoted to a new section of John, a section nicknamed the Book of Glory, in which Jesus marches towards his death and resurrection. And though it's been three different sermons the past three weeks, we've actually been in the same conversation with Jesus and his disciples the entire time. Jesus begins the conversation by washing the disciples' feet, a a gesture that would have caught the whole room off guard. Right after washing their feet, Jesus drops a bombshell. He tells them that he must leave them because he's going to be killed. Imagine how heavy that room would have felt there. But then Jesus goes even deeper. He says Judas is going to betray him that night. And Peter, Peter of all people, was going to deny Jesus three times. Our passage that Megan read for us a few moments ago picks up the conversation right there. And so it's no surprise that our passage starts off with Jesus saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Because to the disciples, they had a good thing going on with Jesus. Sure, they had their upstays and their down days, but Jesus, their rabbi, had announced that he was the Lord and Savior of the world. The rabbi proclaimed that he is the long-awaited Messiah here to establish a kingdom that is going to last forever. Jesus seemed way too good to be true at first, but then the multitudes began talking about Jesus. And they aren't just talking about Jesus. All throughout the gospel, everyone is saying, you've got to come see him. Come and meet Jesus for yourself. Let me show you what it is that we're talking about. You have to experience this to believe it. And it turns out that people did come. And people did see. And this Jesus guy was legit. He was healing. He was standing up to oppression. He was freeing God's people and ushering in this new kingdom. But then, here Jesus is in the room with his disciples, and he's saying, it's about to come crashing down. Judas will betray him. Peter will deny him. And the Romans are going to kill him. And maybe the disciples start to check out in this moment. They go into defense mode. Efficient, logical, practical, wise. To them, Jesus seemed too good to be true, and maybe they were right. Jesus continues the conversation with them. Trust in God, and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am, and you know the way to where I am going. Kind of weird that Jesus is all of a sudden talking about a house, uh, as if Jesus is saying, hey, I know it's hard, But you're about to get to heaven, and when you get there, you're going to be rich, and you're going to live in this big, big house with lots and lots of rooms and a big, big table with lots and lots of food. I've heard this passage taught this way, discussed this way, sang this way. The King James translation even translates this verse here as, In my Father's house are many mansions, which communicates this idea of luxury too. And I know this is so fun to think about and sing about but I think there is something lost in translation for us. The imagery that Jesus is using is not heaven language or or wealth language. It's marriage language. So in Jewish culture at the time of Jesus, if a man was interested in marrying a woman, he wouldn't swipe right and ask her to go to Starbucks. Instead, he would first go to her father and ask her father for permission. And marriage wasn't primarily a romantic proposition like it is today. Instead, marriage was seen as a deal between two clans, right? two families. Marriages were often arranged. The father gave away his daughter to be married and usually got money, resources, or some sort of service in return. Now, obviously, just to say it, these first-century customs come out of a very highly patriarchal society. Marriages were more of a business transaction then than they were today. I'm not endorsing them, just saying that this is the way it was, nor is Jesus endorsing them, But to properly understand the imagery Jesus is using in John 14, we got to understand this world and enter into it. So the man and the father would negotiate, and boom, right? At that moment, the man and the woman became legally married. Husband and wife, they and the father would then share wine to seal the deal, to sign the contract. No coincidence that Jesus is sharing wine in the passage too, earlier, between the two families. But here's the thing. Unlike today, the newlyweds would not leave to begin their lives together. After the agreement was made, the husband would return back to his father's house alone and then begin building an addition onto the home. The addition would later become the newlyweds' first home, and the idea was that they would contribute to the estate in their first few years of their marriage. And when the work on the addition was finally done, the husband and the wife's friends and family, kind of like a bridal party, would go and retrieve the wife and show her the way to the house, usually with great fanfare and lots of dancing and earth, wind, and fire played on repeat. So back to the passage, right? When Jesus says, there is more than enough room in my father's house, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, he's referencing the marriage customs of the day to communicate to the disciples that he has a plan, and he is currently working on something bigger for them. He's not saying, chins up, we're going to live in mansions in the sky. Jesus is saying that he is committed to this relationship, he's committed to this plan, and he's needing the disciples to trust him with that. He's the groom. The disciples are the bride. Things are about to get hard for you, but before you write me off, there are plans in motion. And these plans aren't conditional. They are; I've already made the agreement I've already drank the wine. These are signed, sealed, and delivered. I am yours. But two disciples speak up and have more questions. Thomas breaks the silence first. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? I like Thomas here. right? Thomas is thinking practically. Thomas is the one in the class. He's not afraid to ask the stupid question. Okay, Jesus, you're going and you're leaving and you're going to go build a place for us and then you're going to come back to get us, but that's your plan. What if something goes wrong with that plan? You know, just in case this whole thing is too good to be true for us. Jesus' response seems a little cryptic to Thomas. Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Thomas, the way to me is relationship with me. The life I live, the things that I've done, the things that I'm about to do, that is the way to get to where I am going. Truth and life and this grand plan to redeem the world, I am the way to that. Trust me, believe me. Philip speaks up next. Philip says, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. The Greek translated satisfied here means sufficient. Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Lord, show us the Father and then we'll trust you. That's all we need. That's sufficient. Remember the context. Right? Jesus is building an image using marriage customs. He's the groom. The disciples are the bride. Marriage customs that said, if a man is interested in marrying a woman, he first went to make an agreement with her father. And so when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied, he's seeking proof, security. Jesus, who did you make the agreement with? How do we know that this deal is actually made? How do we know that a plan's in motion? Can we hear it from, you know, not you, but the Father? The one with whom that you made the agreement in the first place? Then we will be satisfied, just in case this whole thing is too good to be true. And isn't that our response to faith, too, so often? On the surface, we love the story of trust and romance and belief, but these are just stories. Fairy tales. Right? In the real world, they all will come crashing down on us sooner or later. We hear what Jesus says, and we, we know what Jesus did. We are invited to trust that, but we can't just trust that. It's foolish to just trust that. We are efficient, logical, practical, wise. We need proof, something we can bank on, which unsurprisingly has created this world in which nobody trusts anybody or anything anymore. Look how Jesus responds to Philip. Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, so why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me and does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus has a plan that's already in motion. The agreement is made. Trust that. Believe that. And now, just hours before his death, his friends are needing proof from him? And maybe trust me and just believe me, maybe that's enough for some of the disciples in that room. Maybe that's enough for some of us here, too. But maybe some of us need more than that. Some things have to be known before they are experienced. And maybe that's why Jesus doesn't end with just trust and believe here. Right? Jesus ends with just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe because of the work that you have seen me do. The literal Greek here says believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me but if not, because of the works themselves believe. This is so beautiful to me. Three years in, Right, hours before his death, and Jesus is still trying to reach those who need to see words backed up by action. Both Thomas and Philip are seeking the same thing, proof, security. And Jesus knows that sometimes it's not enough to just say to someone, hey, I love you. Right? Anybody can just say that. Love is demonstrated. Love is shown through action. Love is lived from Jesus because of the works themselves Believe which is a statement that may have felt pretty hollow when it did all come crashing down. Hours later, Jesus is arrested and the disciples scatter. It's a statement that may have felt worthless as Jesus' dead body is lowered off a cross. Trust me, believe me, a statement that seemed foolish as Jesus' body was covered in spices and wrapped in linen before being put into a tomb. But just at the height of their skepticism, something happens. Jesus walks out of a tomb, and Jesus comes to them and stands with them in a room, and he is alive. The resurrected Jesus in the flesh, a real human being standing in a real room, living, breathing proof that Jesus' promises weren't just empty promises. Living, breathing proof that God really has come to heal and repair and to love a world that is lost. But there's one disciple who's not here. It's Thomas. And maybe Thomas has just sworn off the whole thing. Maybe Thomas felt betrayed. Maybe Thomas was choosing to stay away because the other disciples were foolish, right? Clearly having a hard time accepting reality. To Thomas, Jesus was dead. And that's what our world tells us to do too, right? When we've been tricked, when we've been duped, we're supposed to swear it all off build up a defense, try to figure things out on our own, discover truth for what truth really is. And so we start disconnecting ourselves, we end relationships, we see each other once a month instead of once a week. Sure, everybody can go off and have their own fun, believe what you want to believe, just don't hurt anybody, but I'm going to be over here, efficient, logical, practical, wise. But Thomas is missing what's happening. And when we stop showing up, sometimes we are missing it too but if not, because of the works themselves believe. Jesus just walked into a room across town and is eating and laughing and hanging out with his friends, and Thomas is missing it. Eventually, Thomas does return. Practical Thomas, right? The one in class who's not afraid to ask the stupid question. Staring at a real resurrected Jesus. But if not, because of the works themselves believe. Thomas rushes into the house. I imagine that he's greeted by a bunch of disciples, telling him the good news. Jesus is alive. He's here. He's in the other room. And then Thomas speaks up. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Show me proof. Proof that Jesus has indeed conquered death and saved the world and wants to heal and repair it. Proof that this isn't too good to be true. And Jesus meets Thomas and looks Thomas square in the eye, and he holds out his hands, and he shows him his side. Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And so Thomas does. Sticks his finger right into the hole in Jesus' wrist, which is really weird (laughs) if you think about it but it's also really beautiful, too. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaims. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. But if not because of the works themselves, believe. I relate to Thomas here. I'd need to see it. I would need to touch and poke and prod And I can't be alone, right? If we're being real, we've all heard this story and we've doubted at some point. Did the resurrection actually happen? Is hope actually real? Especially when things are hard. Especially when Christ seems so far, when God isn't answering our prayers, when we're lonely and confused, when we're waiting for something that never comes. Especially when we've given everything that we have and we just can't catch a break. Show us, Jesus. Show us that you're actually with us. Show us that you're actually working because we don't see you. That we're not wasting our time here. We need proof and security that you've conquered death and saved the world and you want to heal and repair us. We need to experience it. We need to feel it. We need to know it for ourselves. And so God did. Right? The Word became flesh and made a dwelling among us. Listening, listen to the open, opening words of John, 1 John Hear the body language right here, the flesh language. John writes We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. We doubt, we struggle, we pray, we want to give up. Knowing God is so hard. But how much harder would it be if we didn't have Jesus to look at? Because of God's relentless pursuit of the world who rejected him, Thomas could stick his finger in God's wounds. Thomas could touch God with his hands, look God in his eyes, hug God, squeeze God, and God could squeeze Thomas back. We can't do that the same way Thomas could. Jesus' body is not here in the same way that it was in that room on that day. But Jesus' body is still here. The Holy Spirit comes to the disciples and, and Jesus tells them that they are to be the body in the world. Go out. Be the good news. Be my flesh. Be the resurrection. Show the world what resurrection feels like and looks like and sounds like. Let them see my body in you. Jesus' body is not here in the same way that it was in the room on that day. But Jesus' body is still here. Look. Look. We, the church, are the body. We carry his name, his legacy. We are proof that God's plan to redeem creation is real and trustworthy. And know what Jesus doesn't say to the disciples, right? Jesus doesn't say, go convince, go debate, go argue. Jesus tells them to go love and reconcile, to bring justice to the fatherless, to plead the widow's cause to join the Spirit in breathing new life into broken hearts, relationships, and systems, and to have a stubborn hope and resilience that dares to believe that the world and our lives are actually intended for more things. Like Matt talked about last week, to be the listening ear for somebody, hearing somebody else's confession, receiving it, and to be the resurrected Jesus in front of them, speaking Jesus' words so that they can get out of this cycle of sin and shame and failure. I love the way author David Gushy puts it. He says, the church is where Christ can be be met bodily in the world. Everything we see in the life and ministry of Jesus, his mercy, justice, love, healing, passion, courage, sacrificial spirit should be visibly incarnated in his body, the church. It's rarely a well-seasoned argument that convinces people to follow Jesus. It's people, it's relationship. And we are invited to go and be that relationship and that proof that others need. More often than not, I think that touching, right? touching the body of Christ, the church, the body of Christ as it exists today, touching the body is likely the chief reason that any of us started following Jesus in the first place. That's why I'm here. It's why I stay here. It's why we returned here. It's why I remain committed to God's people and God's efforts, even when darkness or even when the abuse and the mess-ups of the church itself makes me think that I'm wasting my time. When I think of why I'm here, I think of all of those names and faces who were the proof that I needed at some point in my life. Like right? Jay, a, a 31-year-old who took me under his wing when I was 15, he was the first adult that I saw follow Jesus in a real way. Or my friend Garrett, who would so often listen to me share something hard or vulnerable, and before saying anything to me, would just stop and pray, focusing my attention to Jesus first. I think of Kevin, a friend who has perfected this spiritual discipline of playfulness and silliness on one hand, yet loyalty and commitment on the other hand, because that, to me, is Christ. Ryan, every Friday for two years straight, we would get together at the end of our workday, read a prayer over each other, confess to one another what we needed to get out, and then speak grace and freedom over each other. Every Friday. I think of you all. I think of Amy, who just exudes Jesus' wisdom and peace and calm and rest. Thank you, Amy. I think of Megan Webble, who is giving her body and time and energy into thoughtfully, like, like, really, really thoughtfully caring for the spiritual life of our kids. And let me tell you, in the church world, it would be so easy to just mail in a kid's program so that we can check the box and that we can say that we have it. But Megan refuses to lower her expectations there. I think of the men in the small group that I've attended the past few weeks, such a tender time where a group of men sit in a circle and share vulnerable things about our lives. Like, where else does that happen in our culture? Katie Craig, who every time that she sees you is so stoked as if she hasn't seen you in years. Or Ellie Amari, who, like Jesus, just sometimes throws caution to the wind and treats people she meets like they're celebrities. I think of Ben and Megan over, who have given a decade of their lives to church plants, who have given dozens of Sunday mornings so that we can be given dozens of bagels. (laughs) Right, But it's not about the bagels to Ben and Megan. It's about the connection that they get to have with with us when they're serving them but if not, because of the works themselves believe. It's the stories from people. People who simply by loving Jesus themselves, I get to see that, we get to see that. And just by seeing it, we are encouraged, we are held up, we are nurtured. This is the body. My Lord and my God. Who has it been for you? Who is it now for you? Who allows you to see and hear and touch God? And followers of Jesus, we fail miserably, right? We don't do this perfectly, and none of us do it perfectly. People do terrible and hurtful things, and sometimes in Jesus' name, they do those hurtful things, and we are all still in process. But when the church, when we are all God intends us to be, God's body walks out of a tomb, and into a room of people who are desperate to see proof and who are desperate, who, desperately needing security. Something that shows them that death is conquered. That God is right now working to heal and repair all of creation. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you for all the names and the faces and the stories that that come to mind. We thank you for all those who have loved you, and just by loving you and letting us see them loving you, we saw you. We saw the resurrected body walk into a room. Thank you, Lord, for the ways that you've done that for us. For those whom... For whom Christ seems far, for whom Christ seems distant and uninvolved, for those who are experiencing some degree of loneliness or confusion, for those in limbo, for those who just can't catch a break, for those who, for very, very legitimate reasons, no longer trust anything that looks like Jesus. We pray that they see the resurrected body of Christ. We pray for their opportunity to poke and prod and to feel the squeeze, to feel the squeeze of a resurrected God. Move, Jesus. Move in our world. Amen.